And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And a very good morning to you listeners. This is Lalitha Chalaya at the helm here taking you through to 9 o'clock, and we have some exciting stuff to present to you. I have Professor Francis Boyle talking about the Palestinian situation, and I have um, a new contributor um, from Sydney. He's um, he's going to talk about the Venezuelan elections, which took place last week, or this week rather, and the right wing gained a two-third majority in the assembly, but it's more complex than it sounds. And, of course, we have Humphrey McQueen in the last half hour, so it should be interesting. Now, let's start off with Francis, uh, Professor Francis Boyle. And I have to say it's um, an honor to um, speak with this um, gentleman. He is a professor in international law, an expert in international law, actually. And, of course, he's he's a doctor of law from Harvard Law School. And he is an author of several books. He has written a book called Defending Civil Resistance Under International Law. That's one book. The other one is The Future of International Law and American Foreign Policy. And another, World Politics and International Law. He has many accolades to his um, experience, I guess, or his history. And he's um, a consultant to Amnesty International and the American Friends Services Committee. He assists and, well, he has assisted assisted the Palestinian people for decades, really. And um, he also defended the Bosnia has a governor in the International Court of Justice. So he is one amazing um, person and several achievements, and he is um, very strong on the human rights question. So let's see what he's got to say. I'm going to start from the historical perspective briefly and then go on to the current situation. So I did this interview kind of, uh, just a little while ago. So enjoy. Welcome to 3CR, uh, Professor Ball. Thank you so much for talking to us. I thought we could start the interview with the, the establishment of the State of Israel. What was, what was that all about in 1948? Sure. Well, uh, thank you for having me on and my best to your listening audience. Um, as a result of uh, World War II, there were uh, large numbers of uh, Jewish refugees in uh, Europe that uh, the United States, Britain, France really did not know exactly what to do about. Uh, So effectively, they decided to uh, give them uh, Palestine and let them uh, move over to Palestine, uh, steal Palestine, uh, ethnically cleanse the uh, Palestinians out of there. 
and set up the uh, uh, state of Israel. And that's really where uh, Israel came from, uh, an act of uh, uh, ethnic cleansing and uh, genocide that uh, still uh, continues today. And you can read about this. Uh, it's not just my opinion, but uh, Ilan uh, Pape, uh, an Israeli uh, scholar, has written uh, an excellent book called The uh, Ethnic uh, Cleansing of uh, Palestine. So that's really what what happened, and the uh, Palestinians still suffer from this today. Hmm. You had written a document called Create the State of Palestine. It was actually a, a memorandum of law for the PLO to consider. And that happened in 1987, but nothing was done about it till 1988. What happened at that juncture? Right. Well, in 1987, the PLO asked me to speak as their guest at the uh, United Nations uh, headquarters uh, to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the uh, 1967 wars. And there, too, uh, Israel uh, struck first around the uh, against the surrounding Arab states and inflicted another round of uh, ethnic cleansing uh, against the Palestinians. And to make a long story short, in my speech at the UN, I said the uh, time had come for the uh, Palestinians uh, to unilaterally proclaim their uh, own state and then uh, get it uh, recognized uh, internationally and also by the uh, United Nations uh, organization uh, following the precedent that the uh, United Nations had just completed with respect successfully with respect to the independence of uh, uh, of Namibia and i briefly explained uh, how how this uh, could be done um so the uh, PLO members there asked me to uh, uh, write this up uh, for consideration for the uh, uh, PLO leadership then in uh, Tunis. And I uh, uh, proceeded to uh, research it. Uh, you, you can read it, the document itself. It's called uh, Create the State of uh, Palestine. It's reprinted in my book, um, Palestine, Palestinians, and International Law. And I uh, sent it off to the uh, PLO, I guess it was the uh, uh, March or so of 1988, just as uh, shortly after the uh, Intifada had become, uh, had started in Gaza in December of uh, uh, 1987. And the uh, uh, PLO said they would... uh, take a look at the uh, uh, memorandum and uh, uh, have a uh, committee of their uh, experts and political leaders uh, study it. Well, uh, the uh, first Intifada was uh, uh, a spontaneous uprising by the uh, Palestinians. It was not orchestrated by the uh, PLO in, uh, in Tunis. Indeed, they were scrambling to keep up with it pretty much like what's uh, happening now, where you're seeing another uh, spontaneous uprising by the uh, Palestinians uh, against uh, uh, Israel. 
and the uh, unified leadership of the uh, Intifada that was uh, uh, set up by themselves in uh, Gaza, the West Bank, occupied Palestine, then demanded the uh, PLO create a state for them. So in uh, August of uh, 1988, uh, King Hussein of Jordan uh, uh, abandoned and repudiated any claims Jordan might have had uh, to the uh, West Bank and uh, uh, Jerusalem. And uh, at that point, the uh, PLO realized they uh, ha- had to do something. And so they uh, retained me to uh, advise them uh, on my proposal that they unilaterally create their uh, own state. And my uh, uh, paper, the creator of the state of Palestine, became their position paper uh, for their uh, uh, right to do this. And I served as uh, legal advisor to uh, uh, PLO chairman uh, Yasser Arafat and the uh, uh, PLO uh, executive committee, central committee, on the uh, Palestinian Declaration of Independence on uh, November 15th. Uh, 1988, uh, Palestine uh, Independence Day. Hmm. And uh, it was an immediate uh, success. Uh, well over uh, 100 states uh, uh, recognized the uh, state of Palestine, uh, pursuing the uh, strategy I had outlined for the uh, PLO. The UN uh, approved it. Uh, today, the state of Palestine is recognized de jure by 136 uh, states. And two years ago, November 29, uh, 2013, the United Nations uh, General Assembly uh, recognized uh, Palestine as an observer state uh, along the lines of uh, Switzerland that was uh, an observer state from the founding of the UN until about 2002, uh, when it applied to become a, uh, a UN member state. So that you know, there it is. Uh, uh, the legal work can be found uh, in my book, and a uh, follow-up book I did called uh, uh, "Breaking All the Rules" that uh, provide uh, further uh, explanation and uh, uh, analysis. Uh, and bringing it up to date, I think, to about 2008-2009. The only thing keeping uh, Palestine out of uh, full-fledged membership uh, in the United Nations is the uh, threat of a veto by the uh, United States government, in this case the uh, Obama administration. Uh, But I have devised a uh, mechanism whereby the uh, Palestinians can uh, overcome this by means of invoking the uh, Uniting for Peace resolution and having the uh, UN General Assembly itself uh, admit them. And all that is explained in my uh, two books, uh, how how that can be done by the uh, Palestinians. And they do have the vote in the uh, votes in the General Assembly uh, to to be admitted as a full-fledged member state. Uh, they they have all this uh, 
documentation as well. Indeed, uh, Hanan Ashwari has uh, publicly referred to the uh, Uniting for uh, Peace Resolution, I believe, Saab Arakat as well. So they know that they can go for full-fledged uh, UN membership at any time uh, they want to. It's really a, uh, uh, a political question for them because they're constantly being threatened by the United States government, as well as Israel, uh, not to do this. The question I want to ask, um, there are a couple of times I, <laughs> I have failed, but the, the question is when the state of Israel was initially proclaimed by the League of Nations and, and Britain and so on, why is it that they did not think of what will happen to the Palestinians and from the start propose a two-state proposal, so to speak? Well, there was a, a two-state. There, there was a majority. They, the UN set up a, a committee to investigate this matter, and uh, they uh, had a majority uh, report uh, proposing uh, two states and uh, a special uh, international trusteeship uh, for the uh, city of Jerusalem. But the uh, Palestinians uh, took the position that the United Nations had no right to rob Palestine from us. And they were certainly uh, uh, correct. Uh, you know, what? who gave the UN the right to steal Palestine and, and give it to the Jews? No one. Mm. Uh, it, it clearly uh, violated the United Nations Charter, the right of the uh, Palestinians to self-determination, and it entailed uh, within it the uh, massive uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide of uh, about 700,000 uh, Palestinians right out of their homes. So the United Nations had, had no right to uh, uh, steal uh, uh, Palestine from the Palestinians and give it to the Jews, but that's what they did because, the uh, uh, again, the United Nations was, uh, uh, at that time, certainly, was under the control and domination of the uh, great powers, uh, especially uh, the United States and uh, and Britain. And they were the ones who were uh, spearheading this uh, uh, campaign to steal uh, Palestine and, and give it to the Jews. Hmm. You, you actually went back after that initial uh, block in trying to implement the two-state solution, and you had a second go at it, and that was around the Oslo Agreement. Um, Abdul Sh- um, Hi- Dr. Haider Abdul Sharif actually approached you um, as a consultant on legal issues relating to this agreement. What was your role in the Oslo Agreement? Well, in the uh, Palestinian Declaration of Independence, uh, Chairman Arafat, decided to uh, formally accept the uh, two-state solution. Uh, Up until then, uh, legally, they had not. Their position had always been that there should be uh, one state of Palestine that uh, covered the entire mandate for Palestine, and it should be a uh, secular uh, state. Uh, not a uh, religious state, but of course Jews Jews could live there too as uh, citizens of the uh, state of uh, Palestine. 
In the Declaration of Independence, President Arafat convinced the uh, PLO and the Palestine National Council uh, to accept the two-state solution. And the uh, Palestine National Council is the uh, supreme uh, legislative authority for Palestinians all over uh, the world. So that it was his advice, his recommendation. They accepted this uh, uh, almost uh, overwhelmingly, uh, not not completely, but almost overwhelmingly. And uh, on the basis of that uh, acceptance of the uh, two-state uh, solution, uh, the United States government then, under um, President Reagan uh, himself, uh, opened uh, diplomatic relations with the uh, PLO. And then under uh, President Bush Sr., uh, initiated the uh, Middle East peace negotiations. Uh, they uh, started in Madrid with opening uh, statements uh, and then uh, moved to uh, Washington, D.C. for the uh, formal negotiations. And I was asked to serve as uh, legal advisor to the uh, Palestinian delegation uh, to the Middle East peace negotiations starting in 1991 and its uh, chair, uh, the late great uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Haider Abdul Shafi, and also uh, staying at the same hotel, uh, the Grand Hotel in Washington was the uh, Lebanese delegation and the Syrian delegation, and the uh, Syrians uh, also uh, eventually asked me to serve as uh, legal advisor to them, uh, which which I agreed uh, to do. Um, we were there. Uh, uh, at the uh, Middle East peace negotiations on the uh, basis of the uh, Camp David Accords where the uh, Israeli government had agreed uh, to uh, negotiate um, an interim uh, autonomy arrangement with the uh, Palestinians uh, that was to last for a period of uh, five years. And uh, um, Dr. Abdul Shafi uh, asked me uh, to uh, draft uh, this uh, uh, interim uh, arrangement uh, for them that would be uh, uh, interim to uh, full-fledged independence and was only to last uh, five years uh, from, the, from the signing of the uh, uh, interim uh, uh, agreement. So I did uh, draft that. Um, you can read about it. Uh, you can read it in uh, my book, Palestine, Palestinians, and International Law. Uh, it was approved by uh, uh, Dr. Abdul Shafi. It was approved by the uh, entire team there in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was approved by the uh, PLO. It was approved by the uh, PLO uh, Central Committee. So I had, I had assumed... Uh, uh, I, I got all the Palestinians to agree on uh, one uh, uh, negotiating uh, initiative. Uh, but what happened was the um, uh, Israelis uh, went behind our backs and opened up a uh, secret channel of negotiations in uh, uh, Norway where uh, they presented a uh, what could only be charitably called a uh, Bantustan uh, proposal. 
Um, and uh, uh, what happened uh, eventually uh, at the end of the day, um, and despite the uh, best efforts by uh, Dr. Abdul Shafi and, and myself, uh, uh, President Arafat decided to sign the uh, uh, Bantustan uh, proposal at the White House. And that Bantustan proposal was the uh, uh, Oslo uh, Agreement. Mm. And, and so he, there it is. Sorry. He, well, he, he, you know, I understand uh, President Arafat uh, was the uh, uh, president of the Palestinian people, not me, not Dr. Abdul Shafi. The PLO was the uh, uh, legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. The Palestine National Council was the uh, uh, supreme uh, 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 legislative authority for the Palestinian people. They all approved uh, uh, Oslo. That that was their decision um, and their uh, uh, right of uh, self-determination. But it was only uh, 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 to apply for uh, five years, uh, and then uh, the uh, final status negotiations were uh, supposed to uh, open. So technically, Oslo has has expired uh, uh, in accordance uh, with its terms. But but there it is. What can I say? Mm. But in 1995, uh, with Oslo 1 and then 2, um, the Israelis deployed troops and divided the West Bank into, area, into three different areas and um, plus a fourth area for Greater Jerusalem. It gave Israel total control and um, furthered its settlement expansion. So it, Oslo 2 didn't quite hold the hopes of the Palestinian people as much as that was hoped, really, did it? Well, that is, that is correct. Israel never never proceeded in good faith from the get-go. As, as I told the Palestinians in my uh, uh, proposal, uh, uh, which was a counteroffer to what the Israelis gave us, the Israelis' uh, uh, document was only a Bantustan, and I'm sure uh, uh, you're familiar with what the Bantustans were uh, in uh, uh, the criminal apartheid regime in, in South Africa. Yes. It was only a Bantustan, and it would never be anything more uh, than a Bantustan that they were uh, uh, offering the uh, uh, Palestinians a, a fake state, and that, uh, you know, nothing nothing was really going to change. That, uh, as I told a very uh, high-level uh, PLO uh, official, uh, the the Oslo document would be a straitjacket, and it would be um, uh, very difficult to negotiate your way out of. And sure enough, uh, it, it was. Uh, what what can I say? I, I think uh, President Arafat was, uh, I think, hoping against hope uh, that this would result in a uh, uh, two-state uh, uh, solution that the Palestine would actually get Israeli occupation forces out of uh, uh, Palestine. Uh, I, I didn't see it that way, but um, I'm just a lawyer. I, I gave him the best yes. advice I could. Of course. And the, uh, the PLO uh, agreed with him, and the Palestine National Council uh, agreed with them. So um, there it is. What, you know, there's, there's nothing I can say. I'm not uh, criticizing uh, him at all, but I, I had predicted this was going to happen in the uh, uh, memo uh, I did uh, for them all. Mm. 
But the unjust, unjust part of the whole thing is that Israel kept ignoring any resolution adopted by the Security Council, even it was mildly in favor of the Palestinians. And the Americans, obviously, are equally culpable in this um, genocide that's been conducted against the Palestinian people. So how do you deal, even though the legalities are there, Israel ignores it. So what is to be done is, is a question I'd like you to explore a little bit for me, if you, if you don't mind. Well, uh, yes, I, I did uh, uh, outline uh, steps for a uh, legal intifada that Palestine can undertake uh, against Israel, uh, uh, including joining uh, all these uh, international organizations, uh, now, now that they're a UN observer state, uh, as well as uh, going for uh, full-fledged uh, UN membership. Uh, I had advised uh, the Palestinians on their uh, uh, UN uh, membership application. Indeed, that was in my original proposal going back to uh, 1987, how to do this. They did submit it to the UN. Uh, uh, President Abbas was there in uh, 2012, but the Americans threatened them. Uh, and so they went for uh, observer state status uh, only. But certainly uh, now uh, I think, uh, I, I would think the uh, Palestinian leadership should bite the bullet and go for a uh, full-fledged uh, UN uh, state uh, membership. And then we'd be uh, in a situation like uh, uh, legally and politically like Kuwait was when it was uh, uh, invaded and occupied by Iraq. Uh, and that, that would make it uh, very clear to the entire world uh, what's going on here. Um, for the uh, uh, state of Palestine to join all these uh, United Nations uh, organizations, and all of these uh, organizations have uh, mechanisms uh, to sanction uh, other member states. And Israel is uh, is a member of most of these uh, UN uh, uh, international organizations. And uh, I believe the Palestinians would have the votes to start to get them uh, uh, sanctioned uh, by all these other uh, UN uh, organizations. And then uh, uh, finally, I, I've recommended to the uh, uh, Palestinians that uh, they give me authority to uh, sue Israel for uh, genocide. Uh, at the uh, International Court of Justice uh, in The Hague and to seek uh, uh, an emergency hearing, uh, interim measures of uh, protection uh, on their behalf, a temporary restraining order. And if uh, Israel uh, violates that, uh, it goes to the uh, Security Council for enforcement. And if the uh, United States government vetoes that at the Security Council, uh, they can invoke the uh, Uniting for Peace Resolution, and turn the matter over to the uh, UN General Assembly uh, for enforcement against Israel. And the UN General Assembly uh, does have authority uh, to adopt comprehensive uh, uh, sanctions uh, uh, against Israel, uh, including uh, economic sanctions. So there are uh, many uh, legal steps the uh, Palestinians can take now uh, if if they want to. And I sent this advice over there to uh, uh, Ramallah. Uh, they're aware of uh, my advice. They're aware of my 
uh, willingness to sue Israel for genocide uh, uh, at the world court. So I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see what they decide to do. Remember, I'm, I'm just uh, a lawyer. I give advice, counsel, uh, uh, representation. But at the end of the day, this, this is for the Palestinians to decide, not me. Absolutely, but that's fantastic advice. Now, on that note, thank you very much for making the time to talk to 3CR in Melbourne. And um, have a good Christmas. Well, uh, thank you. And, uh, yes, I hope everyone uh, out there in Melbourne has a uh, 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 Merry Christmas, uh, 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 Happy Hanukkah, yes. uh, Happy uh, Diwali, which which we just uh That's uh, right. And, That's uh, right. <laughs> Happy holiday uh, season to uh, uh, everyone out there. Thank you very much, Professor Ball. Sure. Thank you for uh, doing this important interview. It's really good. Thank you. And that was the man, Professor Boyle, who um, is rearing to run a case against the Israelis. And um, he also, by the way, is waiting for the Sri Lankan Tamils to... uh, encourage him to do, do so as well, except they don't have a government yet as such. So now we move on to the next um, interview. But just before that, just a reminder, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and, of course, streaming live on the web. So let's welcome Jim McElroy, who is a journalist for Green Left Weekly, um, a newspaper that's uh, published by the Socialist Alliance. And um, let's say good morning, Jim. Oh, good morning, Lali. Yes, and today we're going to talk about the Venezuelan elections and its results, and people are just annoyed, angry, and probably disappointed about what happened. <laughs> and maybe you could uh, shed some light on the details of it, because you don't seem so discouraged. Um, well, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be discouraged, I, but I, it is, a, it is a, a dreadful setback. Um, it looks like the, the final result is that... Uh, uh, the, the they've got a hundred. The opposition MUD has got uh, 112 seats. If you include three seats for the indigenous, indigenous there are three yes. indigenous seats, and it seems remarkable to me that the indigenous population voted for the opposition. Yes, yeah, surprising. There's a number of surprises in this result. Yes. But uh, overall, according to the figures I have here, the Democratic United Front. Unity Front, MUD, received 56% of the popular vote compared to the Socialist Party of Venezuela, 41%. Mm. This is, this is actually... But, a, sorry, go on. Oh, well, I was just going to say, that gives them... The, the critical point there is that they have just flipped over the line to a two-thirds majority. So if they, get the three, if they use the three Indigenous seats, that gives them 112 seats, mm. with the PSUV getting 55. So they're just... Uh, like one seat or two seats over the um, over the two thirds majority. Mm. But now what, that gives them significant opportunities to try to roll back the revolution. That's a lot of things they can do, and there's some things they can't do. But just just before we get to that, what what surprises me is the history of the 16, 17 years of rule by the um, Socialist Party in Venezuela. Um, you know, it, like. May this month, this year, uh, Maduro announced a 50% salary increase for teachers. And at May Day, he announces a minimum wage claim. Um, and he also, 
they create a council of people for disabilities. He, um, Venezuela Trade Union Congress was um, in a position to propose industrial and economic strategy um, last year, last not last year, last November, and the role he gave that, um, well, the role the trade unions were able to play in such a, a such an open, like an, a democratic uh, government, and there's there's a list, whole list of things that I can keep reading about the progress and the steps forward for the working class in Venezuela. So I, I wonder if you can explain what happened here. What, you know, it, it's. I don't know, I, I'm frustrated. Why, why did people do this? I know there's international economic pressure and so on, and they, they call this like an economic battle or economic vote as such. So give us some details, Jim. Okay. Well, look, generally speaking, uh, analysts are looking at a number of factors in what's happened here in Venezuela. One fundamental point is the um, amazing fall in the price of oil. Mm. And it, it's fallen, fallen to $40 a barrel. And it, it, as we know, uh, what, two years ago, it was 100, over 100 barrels. That's right. $100 a barrel. Um, this has caused a catastrophic fall in, in the national revenue of mm. Venezuela. Um, and uh, the problem for Venezuela is that it, it's 96% of its uh, national revenue comes from oil still. Uh, even though the government has been trying to diversify the economy and there has been an increase in agriculture and so on. But, um, yeah, this is a fundamental point. The other one is the economic war launched by the business class and the oligarchy, which has meant the hoarding of goods, a conscious hoarding of goods to make them short, uh, shortages in the population for the people. Uh, but to add to that, we have to include government mismanagement of the economy and bureaucracy, which is very widespread, and corruption. So, obviously, there's been a huge turnaround. In uh, People have, have just sort of felt they've had enough and, and they've basically voted on the question of uh, the economic problems. I've just, uh, I've just been reading an article by a writer in The Nation, and he did interviews with people around the time of the election. He was very struck by the fact that a number of people in the poor areas said they were going to vote for the opposition because they just want something to change. It is fundamentally the economic situation rather than any, you know, idea of freedom and, uh, you know, increase in democracy, which the, which the right wing were pushing and which, of course, the United States was pushing, pushing. And I just want to add one more thing, and we've got to remember the role of the United States itself. The United States government behind the scenes has been manipulating and attempting to manipulate Venezuelan politics for a long time. And I'm sure there are all sorts of meetings going on between opposition leaders and the U.S. about the next steps that they're going to take. Mm. It's, it's, it's um, quite... Um, I'm still... So recovering from this, this phenomenon because you know, everybody around the world was so excited when Venezuela had uh, Chavez and it was, it was just wonderful and, and it, it gave uh, huge um, support to Cuba and all the other nations who were heading in the, in the, in the left direction and um, now you've got this but what is even, even worse is, is it's like a nail in the coffin the US has come out and said only um, yesterday I think said it's not going to able to be able to supply the Caribbean nations with uh, 
any any oil, um, which which the Venezuelan government was actually selling oil to the Caribbean nations at a, a subsidy of 60%. So that is going yeah. to hit them very hard because it, it, the geopolitical impact is going to be enormous with this change. What do you think? All right. Well, look, look let, me, let me make one thing clear. While this is a big setback, mm-hmm. uh, it's not the end of the road by any yes. means. We've got to remember that you've got basically different levels of government in Venezuela. Now, the yeah. Venezuela system is a little, perhaps it'd be more analogous with the United States and with Australia. We don't have a, a fully parliamentary system there. So the, the, having control of the National Assembly doesn't give you control of the whole country. The president has enormous powers. And Maduro was elected... Um, his, his term technically doesn't finish till 2019. Hmm. Now, what the, what the opposition can do, it's not clear now that they have the power, if they've got the numbers in the Assembly, to call a recall election, to force Maduro to face uh, an election next year. Um, it may be that they will have to go through the process of a referendum to get at least 20% of the population to support a recall referendum. Um, in the meantime, the president still has enormous power. And really, what this is is an enormous challenge to the Chavismo movement, the supporters of uh, Hugo Chavez, who was the real um, force behind the original revolution. Maduro, we should remember, has inherited the mantle of Chavez after Chavez tragically died, very young from cancer. Mm. So, um, and it's really a, a throw, it's thrown the uh, challenge down both to the government to reorganise and try to uh, put up defensive measures, and secondly, to the people. The masses who supported Chavez for all these years, we should remember that Chavez, the, the Chavista movement has won 18 out of 20 elections in the last... Uh, um, 15 years. Mm. So, yeah, so they've lost this one very seriously. It, it gives the opposition the chance to move a whole lot of measures, uh, but they do not control the state governors. They do not control the level of the mayors, which was run one last year by the, the pro-Chavez forces. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they don't have the president. So the it- president like in the United States system. You know, in a sense, you've got a sort of dual power thing between the National Assembly now and the president, and there's going to be a big power struggle. But um, um, I think that one of the articles that I read has put forward the one of Chavez's slogans, which is, communes or nothing. Mm. In other words, really what has got to happen now is that the mass movement, the grassroots, is going to have to mobilise in a huge way and begin to restart the revolution. Yes, and I also read a couple of um, uh, short articles where they, they have started to hand back many of um, the factories to the workers. So it's workers who are controlling. They already started the process before, but it's, uh, I think it's taken up, gathered a bit of speed with this um, change in, in the electoral, um, you know, Pattern, if you like. Well, I, I think I think what's going to happen now, the challenge to the government is actually to accelerate a lot of the measures. Yes, yes, because, yes. Uh, really, the, okay. In one way, you can say um, that Maduro has got like several weeks now until January to take some measures uh, unchallenged because the the opposition doesn't take control of the National Assembly until January. Mm. He's already begun to take some measures, such as protecting the 
the National Assembly TV station and radio station, yes. which um, is under, at the, currently under the control of the National Assembly. Uh, the president is transferring control of the TV uh, network and the radio to workers themselves. Mm. So the, that that uh, mechanism will be independent of the National Assembly. So there's a number of measures like that that he's going to have to take on an emergency basis to try to protect some of the institutions of the revolution. Mm. All of this is not to understate the, the significant defeat that this uh, measure represents, but um, really it's... Game on. <laughs> yes, I know, but as also there's, there's a couple of other things too. There's the regional um, elections as well, and the regional thing is where they've got the mayor, isn't it? So every region, like a state, yes. for example, have, have their yes. own um, governing bodies, like the local councils almost. That's right. Yeah, so that's, well, that's the election. Yeah, those, they have gained almost powers as well, don't they? Yeah, well, those elections were held last year, and contrary to the general uh, feeling beforehand, the Chavistas actually won those elections mm. with a majority. You know, they've won a majority of the mayors and the councils and the and the, the governors. But uh, uh, you know, that's all conditional now. When when you look at the vote, the vote in this election was fifty six percent to forty one, I think. Mm-hmm. So that is a, that is a huge gap, and yes. um, it does endanger any future election unless there can be a massive turnaround. Mm. Uh, and, and there's going to have to be a whole lot of positive measures taken if, if this turnaround is going to be uh, mounted. Well, it, it's in the hands of the people, uh, so to speak. But one last point I want to just uh, put in there as a matter of um, theory, I guess. This, I guess, again brings up the question of you can't have socialism in one country or attempted socialism in one country because of the, the capitalist environment we live in and, and it's getting worse by the day. And this has proven that other countries have to start doing something to support other countries where a leftward movement takes place. What do you think? Well, of course, that, that's very true what you say, Lali. Now, um, one thing to remember is that Latin, Latin America itself has been undergoing a process of, of creeping revolution, so we say, over a period of the last uh, 15 years. Mm. So that Venezuela is not alone. You have President Eva Morales in Bolivia, Mm. And you have the president, uh, you have a, a citizens' popular movement in Ecuador. You also have left-wing governments. However, one, one uh, in Argentina, a, a centre-left government has been defeated now and a right-wing president has been elected, which was really perhaps an indicator yes. of what might happen in Venezuela. Yes. But there's already the process of ALBA, which is the, which is the coordination of the progressive government's in Latin America to try to you know, develop an alternative to neoliberalism. Um, this, it, what you say is very true, that the neoliberal capitalist forces internationally have now mounted a counterattack in, in Latin America, and this, of course, has been happening all the time, but it looks like the pressure is mounting up. And because of the economic problems, that gives them a greater opportunity. Um, however, on the other hand, you've got... Uh, the victory of uh, left a left government for the FMLN in El Salvador, mm. uh, and you have the possibility of uh, progressive movements continuing to operate in other Latin American countries. So, essentially, the the challenge has been thrown down to the Chavista movement, both the Maduro government and the ministers and the uh, the Socialist Party in Venezuela, and also to the masses in Venezuela. 
there needs to be a renovation of the revolution. Mm. Yes, sounds good. And uh, thank you so much, Jim. That is um, a bit more encouraging. <laughs> okay. And we shall talk thank again. You very much, as, yeah, and as this thing unfolds, I think it'll be interesting to have a further discussion because it'll take, uh, you know, after January, more things will unfold and see how the right wing actually implements policies. That'll be interesting to observe and, and, and keep an eye on. Could I just say a couple of things? Sure. One is if people wish to uh, keep an eye on what's happening in Venezuela rather than from the mainstream media, which, which cannot be trusted at all on of Venezuela course. or any events in Latin America, I recommend that people look at the website, English language website, venezuelaanalysis.com. Mm-hmm. So one word, venezuelanalysis.com. Also have a look at Green Left Weekly. We'll be covering regularly the events in Venezuela in, on our website. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I also give one last plug, which is uh, my other hat, which is uh, a member of the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network. Yes. And we have been organising brigades to... Um, Solidarity brigades to Venezuela over a number of years now, and we, conti- we want to continue to do that because, really, in the end, international solidarity is also a critical part of supporting and, and maintaining and developing the Venezuelan revolution. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Jim, and we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much, Sally. Okay, okay. bye. Goodbye. And that was Jim McElroy from, who was, who was a journalist for Green Left Weekly. Now, just another reminder, and we go to Rod Quantock. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to, fill in the dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, fill in the dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Thank you, Rod. Let's have a quick break and we shall come back to the week that was. So what was the point? Um, I mean, I guess the disappointing aspect of today is that there's no one stopping Nazis rallying in the street except for ordinary young people, working class people, queer people, people of colour coming out and defending our streets. The Daniel Andrews government is doing nothing to stop it. The Victoria Police is doing nothing to stop it. But we've shown today that with people power and people coming together to stand united against racism, that we can actually have victories against the far right who are trying to stir up division, Um, and violence within our communities. It's the first time they've made a connection with uh, working class losing jobs, etc., and uh, government. They've come to a Labor government, outside a Labor government. Can you talk to that? 
Yeah, look, I think that the reality is they're realising that um, on the very fringe issue of the nature of Islam as a religion, they're not going to be able to rally huge amounts of people because what working class people are concerned about is the lack of access to services, education, employment, healthcare. These are the real issues people face. And so people are angry. Um, they're trying to rally people behind taking that out on refugees, on Muslims, on immigrants. What we're saying to people is we need to stand united as working class people and fight together and stand together for a bigger share of the wealth that we create, you know? And so we should be demanding from government uh, more investment in our communities and that will stop uh, the source of these divisions that the far right are trying to play upon. Are you interested in the fact that they've come to a Labor government rather than the federal government? I mean, I think that the, the, the reality is that the vast majority of people in Australia today don't see really any main difference between the two major parties. So I don't think it makes much difference whether it was the Labor government or a Liberal government. Um, both of those parties represent the interests of big business um, and ignore the needs um, of, of working class people. And that's what people are angry about. So the, the government is actually a legitimate target. What the far right are claiming that they're doing and, and who the victims are is just totally wrong, you know. Um, but yeah, th- we're not here today to defend the Labor government or Daniel Andrews. We're here today to um, say to people that if we want Nazis off our street, then we're going to have to rely on each other to make that happen. And today we've been, we've had a decisive victory. That was uh, Mel Rexon um, talking at an anti-right-wing party, anti-fascist party, whatever you want to call it. But the main reason I played that is because the Cronulla riots in Sydney um, it was it was a ten year uh, memory commemorative whatever they want to call it um, was stopped by the courts thank goodness and it was interesting that the far right were able to use the argument of or they tried to use the argument of free speech on how much free free speech they want especially if they are followers of the Nazi ideology so that's a challenge for the um, current governments as to how they walk that line, you know, do you defend these people and um, and then also conduct a campaign again, Islam as such uh, without thinking through the details of um, the implications of racism and so on so that was um, the best I could do in terms of trying to fit in that, that um, event into this program today. So let's go to Kevin Healy and the week that was. A weak solidarity bricky team lister went top marks to Lord Rupert of Wapping and a trillion brickbats to the Spencer Street, no longer Spencer Street, Falfax Media for their coverage of these charges against evil construction officials who took illegal action. As an aside, unions are so evil, those responsible law-abiding people who are not evil have been forced to introduce laws, making it illegal for unions to be unions. Sadly introduced, but the evil unions have only got themselves to blame. Illegal to represent their members because they abuse the privilege. Representing their members shows just how evil they are. So they've been forced to pass laws banning unions from being unions, and when unions have the criminal audacity to be unions, they are obviously illegal, have no respect for the law. So, charges against evil officials who took a legal action over a little bit of danger, a few safety problems in their industry, crippling caring employers with outrageous demands that building workers should be able to go to work, 
and caring employers agree with that, but, but also be able to go home from work uninjured and alive. We also agree with that. Naturally, naturally, caring employer Mike Cain, the workers of Boral Evil Unions, expressed his concern. But that demand must be balanced sensibly against the costs of providing that safety and the impact of those costs on ourselves and, more particularly, on our clients and, therefore, on the whole community. Unlike us, the evil union selfishly restricts its concerns to its lazy, avaricious members, regardless of the community consequences. But the Fairfax media... Not one mention that charging two unionists meant the state socialist government had also been charged along with the state big supremo hoo-hoo, who is in the same faction as the evil union. No link whatever in the Fairfax media, whereas Lord Rupert on page one, two, three, four, well, sensible, appropriate, balance and objective coverage would have us believe the charges were laid directly against the government and refusing to comment on the grounds that the matter was before the courts was clear guilt, was going to ground. Ground perhaps, but no grounds for the connection that we can see. No, no, of course there are. Lord Rupert says so. Doubtless, if and ever... The Grillo, the workers, faced trial over those three pedestrians killed by one of its walls just falling over. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin will devote page after page of objectivity to how the caring business class government in Canberra cannot survive given the connection between caring business and the caring business class party. Or perhaps the small whopping sin story this week on the non-evil filthy rich using tax havens to buy luxury cars, luxury goods, pay exclusive private filthy rich school fees. How can the caring business class party survive all that? They went to the same, same schools, they drive the same cars, use the same tax havens. Except in their case, as Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnable explained, it's it's to maximise their taxes. No, that's minor misdemeanour stuff compared to evil unions carrying on about safety in the workplace. After all, who ever heard of a construction worker being murdered or, sorry, killed or injured? Ah, justice. Well, they, the evil unionists and the socialist state government, have been charged after full, unbiased, fair hearings. Presentation of properly tested evidence balancing the scales of justice by an unbiased, fair, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal King Commission carrying out its purpose in life, what it was set up to do, to set up. As an aside, Lord Rupert will not forgive the people of Victoria Willey for voting the wrong way. On evil unions, see the, sorry, the uh, police have threatened strike action unless pay negotiations get settled. State government, please, please, don't settle. It'll be like a breath of fresh air just once to walk in the street feeling safe. Notice one of the threatened bans is not wearing name tags. And at all those protests over all those years, we didn't realise they weren't wearing them as a protest to support whatever we were protesting about. The bashing the proverbial out of bit must have been just to fool their superiors. They were really onside, comrade cops. Now... Being big national economic guru, as we know, requires deep financial wisdom. 
knowledge, expertise, literacy, an understanding of how to make the rich richer, which is good for all of us, and express empathy with the poor getting poorer, knowing that too is good for all of us, including the poor who are getting poorer, guaranteeing no one will fall through the cracks, the safety net, whatever that is, but whatever it is, we can lay odds it must be contracted out to the rich getting richer, because that's also good for all of us. And I raise this because our current economic guru, Scuttle their more lash son, possesses these qualities in spades, as have the long line of his predecessors. With his immediate predecessor, Joe Hackey, the workers are standout in the economic literacy stakes, and Scuttle them's literacy reached a crescendo. Acme Heights this week, if that's not a mixed metaphor, or for that matter, even if it is, when he discovered what the non-economic literate states were doing with taxes. They were, sit down listening, you're not going to believe this, they were spending them, spending them, whoever heard. With the states, it's tax and spend. He condemned their profligacy. The difference is irreconcilable. We want taxes to be used for their prime purpose, uh, which is, scuttle them, to reduce taxes. Uh, what, we collect taxes to reduce taxes? Exactly. Uh, not exactly. We, we increase the only fair and equal tax, the GST, which taxes us all equally, treats us all as equals, allowing us to reduce taxes on our great good for all of us corporates and the rich, which is good for all of us. Although a touch of financial schizophrenia with the uh, old scuttle them. See, attack the states for raising taxes to spend on non-essentials like health and education, for instance. Then when asked why he thought they should support a higher and broader GST, he said they needed extra money because of shortfalls in health and education spending. Um, how come they have got shortfalls, uh, scuttle them? Because we slash the health and education budgets. So slashing them means you can argue for a GST, but then they can't spend the GST on what you slashed. Which just shows how economic literacy is so essential to my job. But let me make it clear. The government has no firm position on the GST either way. Well, that's pretty clear. Surely no one would think they've already made up their mind or whatever they think with. Uh, of course, the deep expertise in these areas is shared around the cabinet table, the collective think with. Take the Minister for Innovation, 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 Innovation and Innovation, Christopher Payne in there, explaining how a few of those non-essentials might have to become even more non-essential because of the spending. Good grief. Spending? Spending on innovation? Well, not spending. Grants, subsidies, handouts, gifts, and the non-collecting to spend through massive tax concessions to start-ups, to innovation, innovation, innovation. Some cruel souls have suggested the tax dodgers, sorry, tax concessions, will have the tax lawyers and tax advisors drooling, but all within the law, of course. The very flexible law. Anyway, Christopher said on where all these handouts will come from, we don't want to be seen to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. So I ask all the Peters and Petras out there, don't look. There are some great minds in there, listener, and he's one of them. Don't we hang on his every word? 
then again, the Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, makes Christopher Scuttleby Met Al look like Mensa material. Reflected also by the government's favourite so-called think tank, the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, which opened an article this week on why the banks and big financial institutions should get their hands on all that lovely, lovely super with... The industry superannuation model now is in dire need of reform. The scandals that arise because of the conflicts created by union involvement in the financial services industry must be dealt with urgently. Yes, listener, here we have logic and argument run riot. Just leap straight in, assume, don't waste time explaining, yet alone proving, dire need, scandals, conflicts. The article sensibly does not mention that the dire need conflict scandal funds outperform where he wants all the money to go. No, it's a given. Evil unions have no role in dealing with workers' money. Leave that to the experts. Experts gathered in Paris, where the True Blue, where True Blue Aussie agreed, maybe we should look at 1.5% increase rather than 2% if our highly polluting Pacific neighbours aren't going to sink into the briny. But the Minister for being overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers who seems to be carrying the obfuscations, uh, sorry, discussions, also agreed we should stick to our sort of commitment to sort of do something about it, which the long-haired greeny lot claim could be more like 3%. The fossils who helped finance the conference must be popping the corks in their boardrooms and congratulating themselves on their commitment to find the proper balance between saving the planet and their bottom line. As Eliza sang in My Fair Lady, words, 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 I'm so sick of words. Which is great news for you, finally, listener. No more of these words, words, words for six weeks. I'm out of here. A break for all of us and enjoy it and stay safe. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you, Uncle Kevin. And have a great Christmas and holiday, whatever you're doing. And now we move on to our regular guest, Humphrey McQueen. And he is going to talk to us more about valorisation. Good morning, Humphrey. Good morning, Lali. Welcome to Throw to Breakfast. Well, again. yes, it's our, it's our last turn for the year, too. I know, it's oh. coming to the end of oh, 2005, it's amazing. Yes, yes. Um, I don't know. Capitalism, however, won't be taking six weeks off. I know, uh, this is no, scary. We have, to, we have to be alert to whatever it's up to. As we've been talking all year about the nature of um, capital, and we've been doing that through what we've been calling the implosion in capital expansion, which has been going on now for a bit over eight years, since, mm. since 2007. Um, and today I want to look at it from a different angle, and that is to ask from the point of view of capital, what's the solution? How does capital get out of this? We're not talking about the poor old workers who will get screwed in the process, but what is it that capital needs to do to pull away from this? And, and Marx has this term, devalorisation. And clearly it means lose value. Now, of course, the first question is, we dealt with this a couple of months ago. Yes, that's right. What value are we talking about? Mm. Now, we're not talking about that nonsense about shareholder value. 
which means, as we said then, what the price of the shares are. Got nothing to do with value in these terms. You know, the $50 billion that was one day wiped off the value of shares, um, well, it was just wiped off a piece of um, multiplication where you took one share price and multiplied it by all the others mm -hmm. and then, you know, someone didn't pay that much the next day and whoops, $50 billion had gone. Now, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the value of real productive assets, um, you know, factories, mines, you know, things of that kind. Mm. Uh, so that's, what, that's what's got to be devalorized. Um, now, of course, there was, linked to the share prices, there was a general price bubble in the economy. Um, housing prices, everything. You know, that in that period in the in the run up to two thousand and seven eight, you know, there was this general price bubble, um, and that led, of course, to the talk about a financial crisis. And again, we've been stressing all year two things. First of all, yes, there was a financial panic, and we'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But a crisis can't go on for eight years by definition. Um, now. The financial part of it happens because capitalism has always floated on credit. There never would have been capitalism if people had had to pay for the goods when they went to uh, purchase them in the first place. I'm not talking here about you and me going to the shop. I'm talking about what capitalists do when they buy from other capitalists. They've always functioned. In the old days, it used to run for 18 months before they paid. You know, poor old Harvey Norman wasn't in the event. Um, so that credit an essential part of the system. But what was happening in 2008, 2009, of course, was that the big banks, who also lend to each other, the four or five big banks in the world, also borrow from each other. You know, the money passes around between them. And what was happening then, and could happen again at any moment, and there's been some things happening like it since, is that the banks were frightened they weren't going to get their money back if they lent it to anybody. Because even if the firm they lent it to was pretty solid, they couldn't know that the firms that it had lent money to or advanced its... Um, commodities to and was waiting to get paid for, they might have gone belly up. So you were getting this terrible shrinkage of people willing to lend to keep the system going. And that has to be lent every second of every day, not just at the end of the month. This is something the system will seize up unless that's happening constantly through the system. And it was at that point in um, 2008 that that the US state had to intervene to save the free market. Once again, the government, the capitalist state, intervenes to save the free market system out of this. So yes, there was a financial crisis at that time, but why was it there? What was behind all of this? Was it simply a, a financial crisis? Now, it hasn't gone away. The Economist, only four weeks ago, the, you know, the great old English voice of the big capitalist class, been going for a couple of hundred years, they are very concerned about this. They had an article in which it said, and I just quote a sentence, 
the world is entering a third stage of a rolling debt crisis. Mm. This time centred on emerging markets. Now, the first one was in the United States. The second one was in the European Union. And the third one now is places like China That's and right. um, Brazil. Mm. Um, and it went on to say it compared... Shockingly, he compared the capitalist system to the three episodes of The Godfather. Oh, God. <laughs> now, we all know, as good scientific Marxists, that it's wrong to say that capitalists are merely gangsters. Um, in fact, if I had to make a comparison with what's been going on in the last eight years, I wouldn't go for a mere three-parter like The Godfather. It's much more like Star Wars. Oh, right. which is now up to part seven, <laughs> uh, and several more to come we're threatened with. <laughs> it you seems know. like so, it, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, so indeed, that's the reality of where we're going to go. We're only up to episode seven. We've got another seven or eight to uh, go in this, depressing. <laughs> in this rolling economic crisis that they're, that they're talking about. And as we've been saying throughout the year, the Bank of International Settlements, if anybody knows what's going on in the world, it's the banker's bank. Because, you know... That's what the Bank for International Settlements is. Um, and they said this year that they've, what we've got to now is that what used to be unthinkable is now the normal. That this crisis that people keep talking about, as I say, isn't a crisis. It is the implosion of the system, which has become the new normal mm. within people's um, thinking about it. So you might say um, that the reason that the capitalist economy is holding up is because the termites are still holding hands. And that's where they, the Bank of International Settlement says the break has to come. The last year they said there has not been enough wiping off of the value of useless investment. That is devalorization. This is the Bank of International Settlements saying that all they've done is to postpone the day of reckoning. And that reckoning is where you've got to wipe off. You've just got to close down plants all over the place. Now, one of the reasons they haven't done that is they're politically scared of what the social, political um, consequences of that would be. Um, this is this is the plan for recovery. That's the plan for recovery. Hmm. I mean, for the capitalist point of view, that's what they have to do. There is no alternative to them. Hmm. Uh, but, the, but of course, uh, and we'll get to this at the end. It's not just an economic question; it's a political economic question. So the politics of it are: Oh my God, if we if we did that, well, Greece is small and we contained it, uh, but look what happened there. If you did that right across Europe, if you did it in the heartland of uh, Germany, um, you know, the flow-on effects for all of this, and we're seeing it happening in you know, China and Brazil and you know, other parts of the world at the moment, this third wave, as they say. But, but, the, but Humphrey, the problem they have is if they keep closing, even, even if they see it as not as productive as they would like it to, what is going to happen to the buying power of the workers who will be laid off, which then creates another cycle, as, as you well understand? Yeah. Well, this, you know, this is one of the, in, the inherent contradictions within the system. That's right. <laughs> but at the moment, 
leading on from where they were with the excess capacity that they had put into it. You know, it's worth reminding ourselves that, you know, really the classic story of excess capacity was in the automobile industry. Um, up to 2007, before all this blew up, before it erupted, it had been there before, but it sort of erupted at this point, if you'd closed all the car plants in North America, Canada, the US and Mexico, closed all of them, the rest of the world would have still been able to produce more vehicles than there was an effective demand for. Mm. Now, that's what they haven't yet done. Of course, they've closed quite a lot of them, and we're seeing here. And yes. what's happening in Australia, and this is what I think is very important for people here to understand, what's happening at Wyala, what's happening at Port Kembla, right. what's happening with the disappearance of all three car producers here mm. is part of this devalorisation. Yes. It's, it's a rolling devalorisation. And, of course, countries like Australia, which are at the kind of colonial end of this, uh, are the ones that are you know, that are going to cover, carry more of the uh, social costs of it. That the United States had been able to shift a lot of this already uh, mm. onto its, you know, trading partners under its wonderful trade agreements. Yes. Um, but even there, you know, there've been massive more closures that have been going on for you know a long time. But you know, they did actually close some more of the automobile plants. But there are steel plants. I mean, you know, all of these things are locked into each other. Um, you know, if you you need you know if you make you're not making fewer cars, then you're going to have you know less demand for steel and aluminium and all those things. So. But this is what they've got to do. Because but, but, but we need workers' control, Humphrey. <laughs> oh, well, we need work... Well, we get to this at the end. The very important point I want to say <laughs> yes. at the very end about, you know, about where the politics of it mm. are going to come into. But what it's meant is that in China, where they're terrified of the political fallout... Yes. I mean, they've had enough trouble. I mean, there are yeah. thousands of... of eruptions of political, economic, social opposition to the government that mm. go on every year. That's right. And they are trying to, you know, manage this. But in doing it, they're doing what the economist rightly calls they are perpetuating zombie corporations. Mm. Firms that are only kept going because the government's putting funds into them. They're closing some down. Uh, and there's a move back from the cities to the villages again, all of that, you know, happening. There's a kind of shrinkage happening. But if they have what this, this thing, a hard landing, then the whole system blows up. And they're, they're only too painfully aware of that. Yes. Um, so, but this is what, this is what they have to try to do. This, this terrible thing called devalorization. Now, what is it going to mean in real practice? Well, there's a couple of questions I think we need to, to get clear about here. First, how did all this machinery get to be valuable in the first place? Uh, now, the very important aspect of this is that it got there because previous generations of workers put our labour power into those machines. Mm. So what is being devalorised is what Marx called dead labour. Mm. as against the uh, live labour that the worker, when, he, when they go to the machines today, are adding to the uh, 
products. So it's that it's already labour that has gone in there into these things. So it, it isn't that the capitalist has put value into these machines. What the capitalist has done is to expropriate the surplus value from previous workers and put them into these uh, machines. And then in the production process, of course, what happens is tiny bits of this get passed into each new unit of production, but no more than the workers previously put into the machines, unlike the workers themselves who add extra value, which is the surplus value that the capitalist then tries to expropriate, well, does expropriate, but is no use to him, as you said, unless they can sell it. Mm. So they don't get the profit back, or they don't get the profit back, then they can't reinvest, and there's no further capitalist accumulation. So that's very important to get it clear that the value is from the working class in the first place. That's right. uh, now, now, the second point is about what is necessary if capital expansion is to uh, go on again. Now, it's not just, and this is, I think, also very important to understand. It is significant, of course, that workers need purchasing power to buy the commodities. But in the, in the way in which the capitalist system has grown and structured in the last 200 years, we're at the kind of receiving end of this. What drives the system are the machines that make these commodities that we purchase. And behind that, indeed, the machines that make the machines that make those. Sure. So where the system freezes up and where the devalorization has to happen, um, and is it that level of the, of the production of the goods that are themselves the forces and the means of production? How the machines are made, that's where the seizure happens. Uh, that's where you know, the excess capacity is in those. So, yes, it's important that, you know, that there be a, you know, effective demand. I mean, there's always demand. People are starving and they need things, they want things. Right. Uh, but it's whether the capitalist system allows the rest of us to have the resources to purchase those things. But behind that, in a modern capitalist system, you know, that's got a long way behind anything like manufacture or anything like that. You know, this is machinery-driven machinery production in the system. And it's there, what Marx calls Department 1, you know, to be a bit more technical at this early mm. hour of the mm. morning. Yes. It's, you know, it's, it's that freezing up there that really is the danger to the system, but it's also there that they have to cut through and get rid of the dead machines, the, you know, these sort of zombies uh, that are there that, are, that aren't going to produce this for them. One uh, question, Humphrey, there. Yes, please. Uh, do you think the, the trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP and so on, is, is that an attempt to save this sort of loss in value or devalorization? No, I, it's a way of forcing it through. Oh, okay. Um, and yeah, it, yeah. Th these things are. I mean, I mean, devalorization happens every day of the week, even when capitalism is booming. Mm. You know, I mean, it's not something that sort of stops and starts. You know, you know, I mean, new production equipment comes on. I mean, this is how the system drives itself forward by introducing one firm will get a new production technique, 
and that will mean that it's you know, it, it will you know, invest in that. And the other firms will have to try and catch up, but that will mean that the investment they might have just made 12 months ago has been devalorised. Yes, of course, yes. Um, because it won't produce at the same um, competitive price level, and unless they make that change across, they're going to go out of business. Mm. And that's what drives the system. That's right. You know, yeah. this is how competition operates um, throughout the whole system all of the time. Mm. There isn't anything sort of new about that. Now, one thing that's worth saying here, because, you know, it's easy to sort of run the two things together, when we're talking about devalorization, we're not talking about what accountants call depreciation. It may be that in terms of numbers, quantitatively, the wear and tear on the machine is the same, happens at the same rate as the transfer of value of dead labour from the machine into the new items of production. Quantitatively, that may be the case. But qualitatively, something can, we're talking about two quite different things. For depreciation, they're just thinking about that it's, you know, it, it, it's wear and tear, it can't do as much as it uh, used to do. Devalorization is about its capacity to transfer value from where it is to the new units of production. Mm. It's a whole other concept. In reality, depreciation often as not is a way of swindling shareholders or not paying <laughs> any uh, taxation. Yes. It's a kind of accountant swindle. Yes. You know, is what, you know, what it is. So... Yes, there is a kind of parallel between them, but they're not in any means one and the same thing. So, so it is kind of important to get, to get that bit of it out of the system. Uh, what I want to come back and talk about early in the new year is something which I've just mentioned now, and that is the acceleration in the rate of new uh, machinery uh, that's being uh, introduced. About 100 years, well, 200 years ago, you could make a production machine and you'd expect it to last 50 years, 100 years. Nowadays, five years is a very old machine. Yes. Three years. You know, I you know, Two I mean, years are more mild forms these days. Well, <laughs> you know, but it's actually the production machinery. Yes. You know, I mean, I mean, I do not understand how you can print out a pair of shoes. I mean... I don't know. I don't, people talk about this. I do not understand it, <laughs> how it can happen. But if that kind of technology happens, mm. then all of this investment that you've got now, whoops, out the window. That's right. Um, as technology. Warren Buffett always says, it's not the amount of capital you've invested, the money you put into it. It's the money you can still get out of it. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and that's where they're up to. But one important point that you mentioned before that we really have to stress before we close Capitalism will never collapse. Yep. It won't fall over. Even at the worst implosion in the 30s, you know, uh, it did not fall over because it retained state power. Mm. As long as capital has the capitalist state to back it up, as Lenin said, it can get through any crisis, any implosion, 
as long as it can transfer the cost to the workers. I know. And that it can do because it holds state power. Yeah. I mean, in very simple terms, I keep saying, look, capital or, uh, sorry, the state organises capital and disorganises labour. Yes, absolutely. You know, Look at what's going on in the CFMU. It's really Well, everywhere. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you know, but the disorganisation is much wider and more persistent. It goes on every second of every day as mm. well. Mm. Uh, it's not just these big attacks. Um, I mean, that important as they are, uh, it's, it's something that it does to the way in which labour... Uh, is able to think about itself. I mean, it's a cultural, social, um, and a, a political, as well as an industrial. It's on all of those levels, and it's intervening in there all the time to be able to do that. And if there's any doubt about that, Greece yes. should you know, remind us of that. Absolutely. The Arab world, I mean, if you, if you need a second proof of the power of the state in holding things together for the system... Look at what happened to the Arab Spring. Mm. And I, I know that, that it is this state power. And in countries like Australia, we've got to remind ourselves that bourgeois democracy is the covert dictatorship of the capitalist class. Yes. Um, this does not need to go... You know, the last thing they want to do in countries like Australia is to make it an open dictatorship. They much prefer... You know, it's much safer for them here to keep it as a covert dictatorship. Mm. But that in turn means, as you said, that we need worker power. That's right. And that that is not only in the factory, that is for the whole of the economy and the society. That means that the workers need to take control of the state. And that is something we have to think about constantly as we're thinking about what the mechanisms are within the development of the capitalist system as they impinge and inflict their needs onto us. Mm. So next year, we'll be back with many more cheerful facts from the four volumes of Capital. And the, and the revolution. And the revolution. <laughs> oh, well, uh, well, you know, yeah. We'll, we'll try. Okay. You have a good Christmas because I won't talk to you again until next year. I know. Have a great holiday. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you. for all your contributions right this year. Um, uh, it, it, well, it's very helpful to me to have to think through all of these things too. Yes. But, you know, one of the things readers can start doing is to thinking about them too and getting down their volumes of capital and very slowly reading through it. And also reading the website. I put up all your, your oh, um, yeah, yeah, contributions. Goody. Thank you. And it's all up there, and I'll put up these ones uh, today. Thank you. So people can read that. And, and it's very, very informative. And I think, you know, it, it just trying to understand what's going on is a big issue. And, and getting back it, behind all the superficial stuff you oh, see yes. It's I important. Yeah. And um, great contribution. Thank you so much, Humphrey. Thank you, Lali. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And... That's the end of the show, I'm afraid, listeners. And let's say a big thank you to Professor Francis Boyne from the U.S., the international expert in international law. Um, very valuable um, contribution from him. And, of course, Jim Mack, a journalist with the Green Left Weekly about Venezuela. And we had um, Humphrey there. And um, I want... 
be uh, at, at the home till after Christmas. So I'm going to wish all of you a very happy Christmas. And my last show will be uh, on the 26th. And then I'll be back in February again. So you have a good break.